You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. We're calling Legalism to Liberty. With this week's message, here's pastor to middle adults, Joe Cook. Some things simply don't mix. I learned this early one morning at the tender age of five. My parents had to get up and travel 45 to 50 minutes each day, which meant you started the day pretty early. Uh, we would get up, the sun wasn't up yet, and for a five-year-old boy, that's, that's pretty early. And I would stumble very sleepily into the, the kitchen where there was usually a bowl of cereal waiting for me. On this particular day, my mom had been gone for a number of days to training, so that meant dad was in charge of grocery shopping and meal preparation. So he got me up, and I made it through down the hallway, the gauntlet that was having to be walked there, and I sat down at my seat at the table, and it's a dimly lit kitchen, and I plunge the spoon into my bowl, and I bring it to my mouth and spit it out. And it was right there I learned, Fruit Loops and water don't mix. I ran over to the, to the wall and flipped the switch, and I said, what in the world is going on here? And 47 years later, my dad still laughs, belly laughs, when he tells that story. Told it just the other day when I was there. Come on closer inspection, my bowl of Fruit Loops not only had water in it, he decided, well, maybe that looks a little, a little thin. You know, he'd forgotten to buy the milk, obviously. So he said, I'll take some of this chocolate powder we make the chocolate milk with Nestle Quick. Let's mix a little bit of that in there. Let me tell you, don't try it. It's not a good combination. It's... It's very unpleasant, and that's the way some mixtures are. Some mixtures are just unpleasant, and there's a scale when it comes to things that mix well and don't mix well. Some are just unpleasant. Some are immoral. Some are wrong. Maybe you've heard of a half-truth, where you mix a little bit of lie with a little bit of truth. We know better. A half-truth is a whole lie, isn't it? So those are wrong. Those are wrong. We have axioms about certain things. Idioms like oil and water don't mix. There's some things that don't mix. And there's some things that are dangerous when mixed, like natural gas and an open flame, or flame, right? We don't want to mix those two. In our passage today and throughout Galatians, the Apostle Paul has been saying there's some things that don't mix. The law and grace do not mix. And so he's been hammering this all in every chapter, every passage that we go through, don't mix these, don't bring these in. It's a dangerous mixture. And today we're in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. I invite you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have some available on the carts at the back. Reading to you this morning from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to keep one of those. We would, we'd like for you to have that as a gift from us. So let's go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. The Apostle Paul is going to try a new method today. He's been coming at it from different angles. Today he's going to be talking to them about their birthright. Now that word doesn't actually appear here, and it's not really a word we're real familiar with. So let me define it for you real quick. A birthright is a right, a privilege, or possession that passes to someone simply because they're born. That's it. Didn't do anything, didn't have to do any works, didn't have to earn a degree. It's just it's your birthright. It's yours because you're born. It's a gift to a born one. The Galatians have been risking the joy of that 
by thinking, well, I got to work for this, I got to earn it. And Paul's going to be making the case through a couple of different techniques and strategies today to hammer into their minds, you cannot work for this. It is a, it is a birthright. It is, comes to you by the nature of your supernatural birth. And we'll be looking at that. So glance at verse 21 with me. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It's a rhetorical question. Kind of like little Joe and his Fruit Loops and water. He's like, what in the world? What are you doing? Are you paying attention? Are you listening? He can't believe it. When we left in verse 20, he was perplexed, was the word that we, we ended with last week. He can't believe that they're doing. But let's look at this question. It's interesting the way he, he worded it. Look at that. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. We've been talking about how they're, they've been pressured to do this. They've been uh, bullied into doing this. We've even used the word bewitched. They've been bewitched into doing this. But notice here, there's something in them that's a little bit interested in this. There's something about legalism that's appealing to them, that they like it. Paul says, you who desire... Well, what is it about legalism that could be desirable? I know, I found a, I thought through and I came up with at least four things. Okay, there may be more. Legalism builds ego. Observing the law invites comparison. When you do a little bit better, guess what you're going to do? You're going to compare to your neighbor. And if they're not doing so good, you're going to go, well, I'm, I'm doing a little bit better than, than that guy or that lady, right? It builds your ego when you embrace legalism. It promises power. When you're doing a little bit better than other people, guess what you can do? You can manipulate them. You can judge them. You can exercise some, some power over them. Legalism offers acceptance. And oh, we love to be accepted. We long to be accepted. It fosters acceptance because if you do what they want you to do, guess what? You get to be in their club. And if you do it really well, you get to be at the upper echelons of that club. You get to be in leadership in their group. Legalism promises acceptance. Legalism promises control. It's, an arb it's a, a tangible, black and white, objective list. You can check it off. That feels good. Man, when I can, when I can see this and I can just open it and get the answer, that, that feels good. It gives me the, the feeling of control, but now it's an illusion because nobody can really fulfill the list. We, we've learned that. We've seen that. Let's look at them in that list on this slide. We're going to look at it on this slide. There it is. Okay. Legalism is seductive and it can be intoxicating. It builds your ego, it promotes power, it offers acceptance, and it promises control. If you see those things and you're drawn to them, you're going to miss something. And that's why he, in that last clause, he says, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you paying attention to the law? He wants them to hear something. He's saying, you're missing something. And to show them what they're missing, Paul's going to return to the life of Abraham. He's been talking, to, talking about Abraham since Galatians 3, 6. This is a very strategic approach. I want you to think about the Galatians. They were converted to Christ, and what scriptures were they studying? Paul would have taken them to the Hebrew Scriptures, what you and I refer to as the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And guess what? The Judaizers who were trying to convert them to this legalistic system, that was their Scripture. Paul is going to appeal to an agreed-upon source of authority. 
very strategic in what he's doing. Look at the first words of chapter, of verse 22. He says, for it is written, for it is written. He's saying, you know your Bible, you know your scriptures, that's where we're going to go. Let's talk about that. So let's finish 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the one of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the one of the, the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, the Jews prided themselves on being the offspring of Abraham. They were his true sons. But do you notice what Paul just said? Look at that, those two verses. He said, you need to remember something. Abraham had more than one son. He actually had several, but the key of the, the point that he's going to make today, he had two types of sons, two types of wives. That's what he's saying. He's going to be creating this contrast between Abraham is his wives between Hagar and Sarah. And he doesn't even mention their names. You know why? He's talking to people who know the story. They know the history. Now, you and I, we may know that history, but you may have wandered in here and not be familiar with it. So we're going to take a few minutes. If you just woke up and are listening to me and you think this is about Galatians, you may wonder why we're going to be seeing Genesis on the board here in a minute. We're going to go back, and I'm going to tell you the story about Abraham. And why we need to do that is because Paul assumes that they already know this. So let's begin. In ancient times, there was a man, and his name was Abram, before he was changed to Abraham. Now God approaches this man, Abram, and he says to Abram, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to make promises to you, and he, we can categorize them in three things. There was land, there was blessing, and there was offspring. So do you get it? Land, blessing, and offspring are the three things promised to Abraham. Now here's what we don't know yet. Abraham was 75 years old when this promise was made to him. 75 years old. And did you catch that third one? Offspring. Guess what? Abram's wife, Sarai, before it was turned to Sarah, she was 65 years old. So this 75-year-old man and this 65-year-old woman, God comes to him and he says, I'm going to give you land, blessing, and offering. And Abraham says, he says, well, I, I like that, but God, the heir of my household, because the wife that I have is barren, which was considered to be a curse of God in that time, she doesn't have any children. A, a, a servant in my household, this man Eleazar, he's the one that's going to inherit. Listen to how God responds to Abraham. Genesis 15, 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Do you see that? Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look at the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be, you 75-year-old man. You're going to have so many kids. If you could count the stars, that's how your descendants are going to be. That's a crazy story. It's a crazy promise. You know what's even crazier? Look at the next verse. This 75-year-old man believed him, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the story. He believed the promise. God said, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you blessing, and I'm going to give you offspring. And this 75-year-old man said, I believe that. I believe you. This is one of the most pivotal verses in the Scripture. 
This is where we go back, and this is why this is why Paul has taken them to this story because they know this. They know how this all came about, and he wants them to set their minds on that. So Abraham, seventy-five year old, he believes it. But guess what? Ten years goes by. God's timing isn't our timing. Has anyone noticed that? Abraham and Sarai, they they notice. Abram and Sarah, they they wait ten years, and they're looking around, no kids. You know, it seemed unlikely at 75 and 65. At 85 and 75, it's sounding, eh, I don't know. It's really, really hard to believe. So Abraham, Abram, and Sarai, they do what a lot of us do. They take matters into their own hand. There was a law in their land. The law of the land allowed a woman to take one of her slaves and give, them, give her to her husband as a wife to be a surrogate, to produce a child. So Abram and Sarah concocted this scheme, and they said, okay, this must be how we're going to do it, because Sarah, she's, she's, uh, she's 75 years old. I mean, that's, this is getting into crazy land right now. So they put this into pr- practice. Abraham goes with uh, Hagar, and she gives birth to the boy Ishmael. Abram is 86 years old when he becomes a father. Now notice how Paul describes this in that passage. That boy was born according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Paul's telling us that was a natural birth. That was what humans can do. Well, this made me curious. So I went to the Guinness Book of World Records. I was curious if anybody that old had had a a father to son in recent time. And in my search, I found this. There was a man named Les Colley. At 92 years old, he fathered a child in 1992. So he's on record as being the oldest man to father a child. Well, while I was there, I thought, well, let's see, let's see how the mothers are doing. Let's see what, who holds the record for that. And there was a lady by the name of Maria Lara, and she gave birth to twins at the age of 66 in the year 2006. Can you imagine that, being 66 years old and having twins? But remember their ages, 85 and 75. Abram is still kind of in that window of it's possible, it's unusual, but Sarah, she's outside that window. She's way beyond the threshold of that. But God, God shows up. God shows up and he talks to Abram 14 years later. 14 years later, the boy Ishmael's 14 years old and God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abram says, I know that. You've told me that. We've got Ishmael. The plan's working. You know, we helped you out a little bit. Here we go. And God says, no, that wasn't my plan. That was your plan. And in Genesis 17, we read this. God tells Abram, whose name now he has changed to Abraham, he says this. He said to Abraham, your wife, Sarai, your wife, shall, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now listen to this. He's just named her Sarah, and it's almost as if God is pointing. He's going to say, I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people will come from her. Five times it's as though God points, and he says, she's the one. Not this other one. She's the one. At this time, Abraham is 100 years old. And Sarah is 90. Let that sink in. If it was difficult to believe at 75, 
If it was a almost impossible sounding at 85, what is it at 100? It's ridiculous. It's laughable. And guess what? That's exactly what Abraham did. Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, as an aside, I think this is probably the first recording of LOL in print, okay? He laughs out loud. God tells him this, you're 100 years old, you're going to have a child, and it's going to be by your 90-year-old bride. Now, can you imagine the conversation that evening, Abraham walking into the tent to his 90-year-old wife and going, so Sarah, I was talking to God, oh, by the way, your name's Sarah now, um, I was talking to God, and he said, um, well, we're, we're going to, well, your 90s are going to look a little bit different than you thought they were going to. Let that sink in. It's a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And yes, people lived a little bit longer in that time, but their reactions tell us that this is bizarre even to them. Can you, I wonder if Sarah gave him the look. All spouses, we all have that look that we can give our spouse when they say something. Okay, you sure? Fortunately, in chapter 18, God does something else. He shows up in, in flesh. He shows up with two angels, and he has a conversation with Abraham. And this time, in chapter 18 of Genesis, he does it in the hearing of Sarah. Sarah, this 90-year-old wife, is at the tent. She's listening in on this conversation. And God explains to Abraham this whole thing again, and he says, she's going to be the, the mother of this child. And guess what? Sarah laughs out loud too. And you know, who can blame her? It sounds ridiculous, but this is what God says when he hears her laugh. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And she did. And they appropriately named him Isaac. Laughter. What better name could it be? And he was not born through natural processes. Remember, Abraham and Hagar, that was natural. Sarah, 90-year-old Sarah. Abraham, 100. This is supernatural. There's something different going on. But you know, before we move on, I want you to understand something about Sarah. She's not a passive participant. 14 years earlier, Sarah gave up on herself. Sarah put herself on the bench. Sarah said, I, I don't know where this promise is coming from, but I, I can't be a part of it. I'm too old. But she wasn't because God was involved. So I'd like to say to you, senior adults in the room, don't ever count yourself out and say that you can't be productive. As long as there's a breath left in you, God has a purpose and a plan, and it's his power working through you. That's a principle that we draw out of this. And I want to show you the epitaph for Sarah. In the New Testament, there's a book of Hebrews. In chapter 11, we call it the roll call of faith. Sarah made it, and this is what we read. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many and as numeral as the grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah's faith was just as pivotal 
as Abraham's in this process. It was their faith in the promise that brought about this birth. Okay, we've reviewed the story that Paul assumed they all knew. He didn't even include their names in those first two verses. So let's look at what he's been pointing out, making very clear. You have Hagar, she was a slave. You have Ishmael, he was born naturally. And over here you have Sarah, she was a free woman, and her son came about through supernatural means. They believed a promise, and that made it possible. So he's pointed out very clearly two women, two categories of women, two types of birth. I'm going to give you a little hint. Remember how we began? We talked about mixtures. Paul is building a list, sort of like an ingredient list. Over here you have this list that begins with Hagar, and over here you have this list that begins with Sarah, and we're going to be adding to that here in a minute. And he's going to be making the point, you don't mix these two. They don't go together. Paul is establishing a foundation from this Old Testament narrative. And he's been doing it in a very strategic way. And now he's going to be doing it in a very interesting way. We're going to begin, we're going to read through from 24 through 28. And I want you to hear what he says and what he's doing with this story. Now he's going to do something that's, he's going to tell us very clearly what he's doing. He's going to make an allegory out of this story. So let's read verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present day Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, there's his strategy again, Rejoice, O barren woman, one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now let's talk about what he's doing here. If you just read that passage and you don't know everything about the story, and believe me, I left out a lot of details. You want some interesting reading today, go read Genesis 12 to 25. But Paul's assuming a lot of knowledge based on the people who are reading this. But if you just read this today, it's a little fuzzy. He's making an allegory. And what does he mean? Well, an allegory is a type of of interpretation tool. It would be to speak figuratively is what it means. Now, here at Grace Church, the, the type of interpretation that we use normally, that we hold to, is a literal interpretation. We pay attention to the grammar. We pay attention to the the history and the culture that's associated with that. But we also take into account that writers, such as Paul, have the freedom to use literary devices. We find metaphors and poetry. We find even allegories. But here's the key. The writer will always indicate from the context or directly like Paul did here what he's doing. He's saying that story, you know it well, but I'm going to make a spiritual application from it. So it's important that you understand that that's what he's doing. We're not really now focused on that story, but rather the things that it illustrates. So recognizing that he's doing it, this method of interpretation is also very strategic. This is a very Jewish rabbinical way of interpreting the Scripture. And remember who's threatening the Galatian people? It's these Judaizers. So he's not only using their Scripture, he's using their methods and their techniques to show them 
Listen, these two things do not mix. Agreed upon resources and agreed upon methods. Now, Paul's not trying to be complicated. If you read through that and you're scratching your head a little bit about exactly what it means, he's just creating a contrast. That's the main point. Let me direct your attention back to verse 24 and 25. He's pointing out again two different type of women. These women represent two covenants. The first one he's going to talk about, you notice, is Hagar. He makes it very clear Hagar is a slave. She's bound by law as a slave would be. So he compares her to Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given to the Jewish people. And he compares her to the earthly city that's in bondage, the earthly city of Jerusalem. Then in verses 26 and 28, in in this allegory, what he's doing here, he's going to turn to Sarah. And Sarah, even though she's never named, we know that she is the free wife. And she's not connected to any law, so he doesn't mention anything there. And she's connected to a free city, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And then he, inter- then, he re- then he quoted Isaiah 54, where he said, O barren woman. And you know why he did that? He wants to point out that the children of the barren woman are going to outnumber, outnumber those who are born naturally. So let's look at our ingredient list as it's built up. Over here we have Hagar. She's a slave. She's connected to the law. She's connected to this earthly Jerusalem. Over here we have Sarah. She's connected to this supernatural birth. It was by promise. She's connected to the covenant of promise. And she's connected to the heavenly Jerusalem that's free. That's all he's doing. He's creating the contrast. And they know this well. They know this story well. They know what he's doing. He's pointing out Abraham had more than one son. He had more than one line of descendants. And the question is, which one are you connected to? And notice how he he wraps that up in verse 28. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Children of promise. The apostle is proclaiming, that's who you are. It's your birthright. That's what he's focused on. He wants them to see that they are connected to this through promise. And why would they make that connection? How can Gentiles be connected to Abraham? How did the Gentiles come to faith in Christ? They believe a promise, just like Abraham did. Remember that pivotal verse that we looked at? God made these promises, and Abraham believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did they come to faith in Christ? They heard a promise, and they believed it, and therefore they are in Christ. Glance back and back, turn back a page maybe and look at Galatians 3.29. It says, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Did you catch that? If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The law was never meant to bring you into the family. It was never the means of the way that you came into the family. The law has never been the way that you enter into salvation. It was, it is, and it shall ever be by faith. That's the way Abraham entered into it, and that's the way the Galatians entered into it, and that's Paul's big point. That's why he took all this time to go to the allegory. He says, these Judaizers, are you listening to what they're saying? They want you to follow the law. The law is connected to slavery. It's connected to Ishmael. And you know, you can get upset about that story when you think about polygamy, multiple wives, and you think about slavery. But I want you to understand something. The Scripture makes it clear 
that that wasn't God's plan. That was man's plan. You know, he doesn't specifically speak out against that, but the narrative proves that this was never what God wanted. In fact, it works out horribly for him. You go back in the narrative and you'll see that God was the only one looking out for Hagar and Ishmael. And Ishmael becomes the father of great nations. Twelve princes come from him. There's still people on earth today that trace their lineage back to him. This isn't, the focus is not on that story and those individual people. It's the principles that you draw out from it. And he's going to continue to do that. The big principle right now he wants you to see, there's two lines. Which one are you from? Which are you going to do? Are you, the, are you connected to the law? Are you connected to the promise? Abraham heard a promise and he believed it. I want to ask you today, have you heard the promise that God has made to you? There's a verse that you may be familiar with, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's a promise. Jesus just said, if you believe in Him, you have eternal life. Eternal life isn't about length of life. It's about quality. Now, length is there too. It's eternal but it's about being free. It's about being free in your soul. It's about being free to be who He's creating you to be. And you can enter into new life with Christ by believing the promise, just like Abraham did. If you've never done that, I would invite you to do it today. And if you do it, would you let me know or let one of the other pastors know or an elder or someone who wears a lanyard we would like to celebrate with you. We would like to, to help you. We'd like to welcome you to the family because you get into the family by faith. It's not through works. Now, Paul's not finished with his analogy, his, his, uh, his allegory yet. Look at verse 29. He's going to continue, and this is where we're going to find out these two things can't be mixed. Look at verse 29. But just as... At that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. <clears throat> He's made two big points. Ishmael connected to the flesh, Isaac's connected to the Spirit, and what we see in the story, they know this, you may not know this, but if you go back into Galatians 21, you're going to see that when Ishmael was about 17 or 18, it was about the time when Isaac was being weaned. They would wean a child in those days around three or four. And in that scene, it's kind of a strange scene in that chapter, it says that, it says that Ishmael mocked or laughed at Isaac. It's a little vague. We don't know exactly what happened, but here's what we know. We know how they reacted to it. And the reaction was very strong. It seemed to be a habit of something that this 18-year-old man is doing towards this little child. And it became very evident. These two guys, these two boys in the same household, it's a bad mixture. It's a recipe for trouble. Hagar and Ishmael probably would have always made, tried to lay claim to that birthright, that passage of possessions and rights and rulership. And that was not God's plan at all. So we need to remember that we're drawing out illustrations from this. And Paul points out, so it is now, talking about his time. One of Paul's primary adversaries in his ministry were the Judaizers, were the legalists. The primary uh, persecutors of Jesus were not Rome. It was the religious zealots. It was the, it was the legalist of his time. 
And so it is today, for the last 2,000 years, the greatest enemy of the message of grace has been legalists within our own church. It's always been this way. Legalism and grace, the way of promise, they don't mix well together. This is exemplified. When this starts to take place, you have to respond severely. We can't tolerate this teaching of legalism and try to mix it. It's a bad mixture. Look at how they respond in verse 30. But what does Scripture say? Remember, he's being strategic, taking them back to their, their words. The Scripture says, "...cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman." So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but children of the free. Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, and as I mentioned, God took care of them. But we need to remember what is the focus. We're drawing out principles here. And here's the principle. You can't nurture the spirit and the flesh in the same house. You can't nurture the spirit and the flesh in the same house. Paul has skillfully used, agreed upon Scripture, to rip to shreds the perception that the law makes anyone more acceptable to God. Abraham didn't come into the family by working hard, by keeping a list. He came in by believing the promise. Your birthright, it comes up to you simply by being born. And how are you born? Galatians, how are you born? Believers, by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. The birthright of eternal life passes to you by faith. The big point, look at verse 31 again. This is what Paul's been saying all along. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? You are sons of the free woman. Back in 28, you are children of promise. He's hammering it over and over again. This is who you are. They were starting to lose sight of who they were in Christ. Now this letter is not just written for the people in that, in that first century. It's written to us. It's been preserved for us for 2,000 years. <clears throat> so I want to ask you the question. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? You see, our actions and our feelings sometimes betray what we believe, what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. If you believe that you have to perform to be accepted, then that's how you're going to live. And you're going to live in bondage if you're trying to live according to the list, guess what you're in bondage to? You're in bondage to the list. And here's what I want you to remember. You're also in bondage to whoever makes that list. And that's dangerous. Legalism is a mixture that's dangerous, and that's his big point. You don't want to be enslaved to that. I personally have done that. I've lived in slavery to bondage of what people think, of trying to perform to be accepted. Worrying about, will God accept me? Will I, will I, am I good enough? Is God going to bless me? Or I really messed up today and if this bad thing happened, so obviously God's after me. I, I believe that and I lived that way. I lived that way for a long time. And then I finally started to hear about grace. I heard about grace here. And then I began to encounter other ministries. And one that I benefited greatly from was started by a man by the name of Neil T. Anderson. Neil T. Anderson started a ministry that's called Freedom in Christ Ministry. Some of you are familiar with it. We've taught courses on Wednesday night. We have another one coming up this fall. Quincy Krasinski uh, leads those. And in this, in this ministry, we have information, and his whole ministry is, is centered around this idea. I'm going to share a quote with you from Neil Anderson where he talks about how he was helping Christians like me, people who were struggling with this list and trying to be accepted and 
and trying to earn what was already mine in Christ. And here's what he says. He says, I turned a major corner when I started to realize that none of these professing Christians knew who they were in Christ. It was as if they were totally ignorant of their spiritual heritage. And then he states parenthetically, I have since found that to be true all over the world. I've found it to be true too. As I talk to Christians, many do not know who they are in Christ, what has been bestowed upon them. And his ministry is designed to help people learn who they are in Christ and to reach out and grab a hold of it and make it theirs. And here's how we do it. Are you here today and maybe you believe that your identity is that of a rejected person, unloved? Is that how you feel? When you look in the mirror, is that what you see, a rejected, unloved person? Do you know what God says about you? In 1 Corinthians 6.2, he tells us that we are bought with a price. Now think about that. What was the price? Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, left his throne in heaven. He came to earth and he willingly and intentionally died for you. Not loved. How can that be true if you're in Christ? You're pursued. You're pursued. You are loved. Are you going to believe how you feel? Are you going to believe what this book says? Maybe you feel dirty. Maybe you're a Christian, but you just feel, ugh, you feel condemned. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe it? Are you going to believe what God says, the King of the universe? Are you going to believe what He says is true about you? Are you going to believe what you see when you look in the mirror? Do you believe you're worthless? This was one of the things I struggled with. No matter how hard I worked, no matter how well I performed, I just had this sense of emptiness and worthlessness. And Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? How can you be worthless? The Creator of the universe, His Spirit indwells you. How could you be worthless? It's not true. I don't know if that's what you see when you look in the mirror, but it's not true. Now this little technique that I just walked you through, that's one of the cornerstones of that ministry that I mentioned to you. It's all about taking your false beliefs, false assumptions, and pairing them with the truth of God's Word. And one of the key instruments that he uses is a list of things that's called who I am in Christ. You've got a QR code up here. If you have a smartphone, I would encourage you to hold it up and use your QR reader or your camera and take a picture of that. If you don't have that technology, we're going to leave it up for a few seconds. <clears throat> we have hard copies of this. As you exit this morning, there's handouts that you can take and get one of those. But I would encourage you to take this. I am passionate about this. This personally was a turning point in my walk with Jesus. When I started taking these truths and embracing them, I began to see I begin to experience some relief and anxiety and some relief and this feeling of worthlessness. I still have a file on my phone. I looked at it this morning, the truths of God's Scripture, and I speak them out loud. For a number of months, I would open up my phone every morning before going into work, and I would read those out loud to myself and claim that truth. Friends, if you believe this book is true... You have to make a decision. Are you going to believe what God says about you? Are you going to believe what 
the bully in school said about you, your abuser said about you, your history of failures. Are you going to believe what God says? Are you going to believe what those things say? I encourage you to embrace the truth of Scripture because you are more than you see in the mirror. You're more than you see in the mirror. Those feelings, feelings fluctuate. They come and go. But the Word of God stands forever. And what He says about you, that's what matters. And by the way, if you are a little upset about what you see in the mirror, there's even more to come there. I want to leave you with one other verse to hopefully stir your imagination. Not only is, is the truth about who you are in Christ now powerful and freeing, there's more to come. John's gospel, in 1 John, his epistle, chapter 3, verse 2 to 3, we read this. Listen, if you're not amazed, if you're not astonished, you're not paying attention. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, now get this, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This identity is possessed by faith, not by works. And the mixture of legalism and faith is dangerous because it will rob you of this birthright. The only way you can hold on to this is by receiving it through faith, just like Abraham, just like Paul. Your freedom in Christ depends on knowing who you are. I challenge you to believe what God says about you is true. Your birthright is freedom. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.